I hope that as we've been here thus far singing these hymns that we've been encouraged by uh, how good God is to us and just what he has called us to do. Our, our focal point this morning as we look at a, a passage from 1 Kings chapter 19, 1 Kings chapter 19 is going to be on responding to God's call. And I've titled the message just that as we look at 1 Kings 19 16 through 21, responding to God's call. Many Christians are so unsure as to what the Lord would have them to do. They go back and forth with a number of different ideas in their heads as to where they should serve, how they should get plugged in, and what capacity should they volunteer, and all things that sound good, but they're left with uncertainty as to how to respond when God seems to give them some direction. Now, many factors come into play because as you feel God calling you into a specific direction and for a specific cause, it'll force you to make sacrifices that you might be a little hesitant to make. We get into comfort zones where we don't like to step out of all that much. We establish routines that we aren't thrilled to have to adjust we get used to a certain standard of normal in our lives, and we like to keep things the way they are because that's how we feel most comfortable. Or we're, we're scared about changing things up, even if we feel that the Lord is specifically directing us to move in a different direction than where our life is taking us and where we're going. Staying in our comfort zones gives us the sense of peace. Because we feel like we're somewhat in control of the things that are happening in our life from moment to moment when we're in this comfort zone. It's when we step out of that comfort zone, when we struggle, when we don't know what to anticipate. We don't know how things are going to end up and that uncertainty and that level of uncomfort isn't something that we like. It can be scary because we feel as if we're relinquishing, we're letting go of whatever control we thought we had, and we're essentially trusting God to take the lead and to guide where we're needing to go. Back when we were on vacation, I was trying to teach the kids how to swim. We were in the pool, and all the kids were doing fine in the shallow end where their feet could touch the ground. But the moment that I brought them or encouraged them to go into the deep end where their feet couldn't touch the ground, they began to panic. Without their stability and the comfort of their feet knowing that they're on the ground in the pool, they didn't know what to do. They lost the stability. They lost the confidence that they had when they were back in the shallow end where they could feel secure. They could feel stability. They could be steadfast and confident knowing that their feet were on the ground. But the moment they went into the deep end, everything went out the window. Without their feet able to touch the ground, they didn't know what to do. Many Christians, I feel like, are camping out in the shallow end of life's pool where they're comfortable because their feet can touch the ground and they feel like they're doing what God has called them to do. And many times God is calling them to go out into the deep end. And they're reluctant because they know they'd be leaving a certain level of comfort in the shallow end, where their feet can touch the ground, where they know their stability because they feel like they're the ones who are in control. 
Now, in full disclosure, many Christians don't want to leave the shallow end because they're nervous, but because they also don't think that God can use them. They examine themselves and they conclude that they were created to be in the shallow end. And they're okay with that. We're more of shallow end kind of Christians. And we're just very content with being used right here in this little bubble and not venturing even the slightest bit out where we're forced to exercise a little more faith in God. And they're content completely in that area. They don't want to grow. They don't want to learn. They don't want to do anything more than what they're presently doing because they feel as if what they're doing is already enough. If you don't know how to swim, it can be nerve-wracking walking out into the deep end of the pool. When you're in the shallow end, it's okay even if you don't know how to swim because your feet are touching the ground. There's no fear of drowning. But when you start walking a little bit further and you can sense the water level is rising and it's getting harder and harder for you to stand and you're on your tippy toes and then eventually your feet aren't, aren't touching the ground at all, it's a little nerve-wracking, especially if you don't know how to swim. Your feet are what you were trusting in when you were in the shallow end of the pool. But in the deep end, your feet offer you no stability and no confidence. And this is why I was trying to teach our kids how to swim so that they can see how their feet can be used in a different way. But God can use them to still bring stability and confidence in their lives. Now, my goal for this church is that we might increase in the knowledge of the Lord but also expand our comfort zone. We can remain doing the status quo or we can actually respond to God's call to be a light to this community and reach the people around us with the gospel. Listen to what we read in Romans 10 and verses 13 through 17. Probably very familiar verses. The Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Almost anyone can quote that verse. But often we stop right there and forget what it goes on to say. And notice what it goes on to say in verses 14 through 17. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Very simply, God has called every single believer to bring the gospel to those around them, to be a light in a dark and dying world. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16, he said to believers, he said, ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The world needs to hear the truth. And God, believe it or not, has chosen people like you and me to be the instruments 
and the means to deliver this glorious truth to the world. How are we responding to God's call? As we figure out how we should properly be serving the Lord, we're going to follow the life of the prophet Elisha. Elisha, not to confuse you, was the successor of Elijah. Two different people. We first read about him here in 1 Kings chapter 19 as God instructs Elijah that Elisha will be picking up the torch and continuing the ministry of Elijah once he's gone. As great as the ministry of Elijah was, and he's my favorite Bible character, aside from Christ, of course, but of the, the fallible individuals that are mentioned in the Bible, Elijah, he's my favorite. I named my kid after him for crying out loud. I'm waiting for Elijah to pray for the rain to stop. No, it, we don't want that. We don't want a famine in the land or anything crazy like that. But I want him to be such a troublemaker for the Lord that the rest of the world look at him and accuse him of being that godly of a person. Now, it's not going to happen because I gave him a name, is it? But by that godly example that Ruthie and I are setting in that home, I want my children to grow in the knowledge of God's word and I want them to be trailblazers for Christ. Elijah, one of my favorite men in the Bible, was going to be moving on and God was going to miraculously take him home to heaven where he would not see death. But before that would happen, Elijah was instructed by God to anoint Elisha to be in his room, to take over where he would. Now, Elisha, as great as Elijah was and different miracles that God allowed him to do, Elisha did more. Elisha would learn quite a bit from Elijah, and it is likely that the two of them spent probably the last 10 years of Elijah's time on earth together. But let's first begin by what we read here in 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse number 16, as we see first God's command to Elijah. Notice what it says in verse 16 of 1 Kings 19. It says, And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of, e of abel Meholah shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. So God instructed Elijah to anoint Elisha as the next prophet. The office of the prophet was not a sought-after job. One of the reasons was because it was a very lonely position to have. As exciting as it sounds, and in many ways it was, because the prophet was able to have direct communication from God. Most people hated prophets. They hated when people, when the prophets of God came around. You see, God would use the prophets to be his instruments, to speak to the people, and much of what God was telling the people wasn't good news. Much of what God had to tell the people was warning them for their sin and, and warning them about judgment that was going to come should they not make things right. And so, as you can naturally expect, no one got excited about when the prophet came to town. No one got excited when the prophet opened his mouth. Oh, great, he's warning us about something else we're doing wrong. What else do we need to change? What else are we doing that isn't right in the eyes of God? So therefore, the people grew to loathe the prophets. They were always the bearers of bad news. They always painted such a horrible picture of what was going on. 
And they always spoke of judgment should the people not make matters right and return to God. And this is how the majority of the people looked and treated the prophets. They were sick of them. The prophets were often mocked. They were ridiculed. Some of them were even labeled as lunatics and they were disrespected, which sounds like a position everyone would want to be in, right? How would you like to join a position where no one's going to like you, every message that you have to bring, just about every message you have to bring, is going to be rejected and try to be discredited, and you're going to be laughed, you're going to be ridiculed, you're going to be mocked, in some cases you're going to be beaten and persecuted. Does that sound like a job anyone would want to sign up for? Are you sure? You're positive. No one wants this job. It wasn't really a sought-after job. There weren't people lining up, per se, to be a prophet. Who would want to be a prophet? Everyone is going to hate you for doing your job. They're going to think you're crazy the moment you start telling them about how God is going to punish them. They're going to chase you out of town, and in some cases, they're going to threaten your life. For the most part, this wasn't a sought-after position. And in some cases, you can, I mean, you can easily understand why. The prophet was often alone because much of what he did and much of what he said led him to being hated and chased out of town. That's why Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because as much as he poured his heart out for his people and wanted them to turn to God in repentance and wanted them to change their ways and acknowledge their sin and make things right in the eyes of God and avoid judgment from the Babylonians. They looked at Jeremiah like he was a crazy person. What are you talking about? There's war and the enemy is at the gate. You're insane. This is a time of peace. We're doing great. Open your eyes. Everything is flourishing around us. And Jeremiah is one of the few that is actually a voice of reason and trying to urge and passionately plead that the people would listen to what God is telling them, that judgment is upon them, and no one wanted to hear it. He knew that God was going to punish his people for their wickedness, but the people didn't care for the message, and they acted as if everything was fine. The prophet Elijah had been called by God to be his spokesperson, Spokesman during an extremely wicked time for the nation of Israel. The nation was steeped in the worship of Baal, which involved making countless human sacrifices. Even when God punished Israel by cutting off rain for three and a half years, they still continued in their idolatry. Elijah had faithfully labored for God but seemed to have nothing to show for all of, his, all of his work. And all of his words seemed to be falling on deaf ears. And even in a moment of desperation, Elijah, the prophet of God, the one who was basically alone, cried out to God for God to just end his life. The Lord would give his servant, not the end of his life, but he'd give him some food and give him some rest. And then he would remind him who was really in control. Elijah was tired, he was frustrated that no one would listen. He was overwhelmed that he seemed to be the only voice of reason at a time where just wickedness seemed to be prospering. And listen to the passion in his voice as he speaks to the Lord. Just a few verses back in verse number 14 of 1 Kings chapter 19. Notice what he says. 
And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Can you sense his passion here? He's, he's at the end of his rope. He's just tired, exhausted, frustrated. He's done everything he can and no one wants to hear it. And this is actually after this incredible showdown on Mount Carmel where he met Ahab first and confronted all the prophets of Baal and they had this agreement that whoever, after they constructed two separate altars, Whoever could cry out to their God, they would cry out to Baal. Elijah would cry out to the one true God. And whichever God would send fire and light up that altar and consume the offering, they all agreed they would worship that God. And you read about it, and the Bible says that from morning until basically evening, the prophets of Baal were doing everything they could, praying, screaming, even cutting themselves, trying to get that altar lit by a false god who didn't exist, had no ears to hear, and no power to do a thing, and nothing happened. And then the moment they were done, Elijah said, all right, now it's my turn. And he prayed for God to be glorified and magnified in all of it, and God sent fire down from heaven in the greatest fireworks show humanity would ever see. And it does tell us that the people bowed down and worshiped and said, he is the one true God. But it was short-lived. Because not too long after that, Elijah would get a death threat. Even after the rain was restored. And upon receiving that death threat, he ran and ran and ran and asked for God to take away his life. And you see the passion, even as God restores him and comforts him. He says, I'm very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. He doesn't know what else to do. He's done everything that he can and no one listens. He loves the Lord so much that he's given everything he has so that God would be honored. And as he tries to show the people the error of their way and the judgment that is coming upon them, they seek his life to kill him. They keep rejecting God. They keep destroying God's altars. They seek to kill anyone that stands for God. I've said it before. If Christianity was illegal, how many of us would be found guilty? As of yet, we don't have to worry about that. At least not here in this country. But in Elijah's day, people were being killed for standing for God. And even with those threats, Elijah was still boldly proclaiming God. As much as Elijah felt alone, God would show him that there was still a few who were faithful to him and had not bowed to Baal. God would also show Elijah that the wickedness of that day would not continue to prosper, for God's judgment would indeed come soon enough. But notice what we read in verses 15 through 18. It says, And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel and Meholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay. And him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. 
Elijah would not be around to see everything that God was going to do. But God assured him that the work he had done for the Lord was not done in vain. He was to anoint Elisha to be prophet in his room, the Bible says, meaning that Elijah would pick up his mantle, that he would continue where Elijah left off. Now, we'll get into that in just a little bit, but the starting point of Elisha's mission would be when Elijah is miraculously taken up into heaven in first, or 2 Kings chapter 2. Elijah would never taste death as God would carry him away into heaven with a chariot of fire which would mark the beginning of Elisha's own personal ministry and mission. Now, what is there for us to learn from all of this? Elijah is carried away into heaven. Elisha is left to represent him here on earth. In the New Testament, 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven and left believers here on earth as well. For what purpose? Listen to what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8. He says, But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. In many ways, the ministry and the mission of Elisha resemble the ministry and the mission for every single believer. Not just based on the similar circumstances which kicked off the ministry, but also the preliminary details recorded about Elisha before he ever even began as a prophet. You could summarize all those details in several ways. You can call it Elisha's call to the ministry, the test that he successfully passed, the command he was required to follow, and the special power that he received equipping him for that service. The closer you look at what Elisha went through, and we're going to take a good, hard look at this life, the closer you look at what Elisha went through, leading up to his personal ministry, the more you find that it resembles what every single believer goes through as they're called to be servants for Christ. Our focal point this morning is going to be on Elijah, Elisha's call to the ministry. As we see, based on the information that is given to us here in 1 Kings chapter 19, God has commanded Elijah to anoint Elisha. Therefore, we know that Elisha's call was from God. And this may not seem like all that of an important detail, However, there are many people who think they are called for some specific ministry, but they haven't indeed been called by God. Now, I'm not saying they're not saved, but that they venture out into an area of ministry because of a feeling, because of an emotion, because of an impulse, sometimes because of a desire for power or to build a name for themselves, or for any other number of reasons, even though God calls them in a very specific way, which is completely different to where they're going. And even when God seems to be closing doors in their lives, making it clear that their, His will for them is to pursue something else, they keep trying to force the door open, and will seek to find confirmation, when they're not finding it from God, in every other area. I've seen it where Christians feel passionately about one area of service and ignore God's leading, which is leading them in a completely different direction. I've seen people basically appoint themselves to positions in ministry which they have no business being in or finding someone else to give their stamp of approval for what they're doing. Sometimes we feel so strongly about something that we're certain God must be calling me into this because I feel so passionately about that. When in fact, God may be calling you to something completely different. 
even if what you're passionate about is good, when in fact, may, you may think it may be a tremendous benefit to others, it may not be what God is calling you to. Don't fight God's will just because he's leading you in a, in a direction that you would have never considered. Don't fight God's will even though because you're comfortable here in the shallow end and he's given you a little bit of a nudge to step out into an area that is going to take you out of your comfort zone. As we're going to see with Elisha, this wasn't something that he was originally pursuing, but something that God called him to and would anoint him for. Notice second, the call of Elisha. Look at verses 19 through 21 here in 1 Kings 19. So Elijah's been commanded who to go, who to go and anoint. It says, of Elijah. So he departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him and he with the 12. And Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. And he said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? And he returned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave unto the people and they did eat. Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. Now remember, this was not Elijah acting on impulse, choosing Elisha. God specifically instructed him who to pursue, who to anoint in his room, he said. Elisha had not been applying for this position year after year. He wasn't seeking a new way to put himself on the map. He wasn't looking for an excuse to get out of the family business. God called him. God would ordain him to be this prophet. And notice again how Elijah comes upon Elisha there in verse number 19. Notice what he's doing. He says, so he departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he with the 12th. He's working. Elisha wasn't following Elijah around, grabbing onto his coattail, saying, please, let me do this. Please, take me on one of your adventures. Please, let me see all these different things that God is allowing you to do. He wasn't asking Elijah to train him as a prophet. This was all God-ordained. And notice how, again, Elisha comes. Elisha wasn't following. He wasn't doing any of this. As further evidence, this was not for self-glorification because he finds Elisha busy doing something completely different than what God is going to call him to do. Elisha wasn't found even with a nose, his nose in a book. He wasn't found studying at a desk. He was found outside with his hand on a plow. One author has put it this way. He said, God seeth not as man seeth. Neither does he choose men because they are fit, but he fits them because he hath chosen them. Listen to what we read in Matthew chapter 4 and verses 18 to 22 when Jesus called his first disciples. It says, And Jesus, walking by the sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. So the Bible says that Peter and Andrew, they were casting a net into the sea when Jesus called them. James and John, it says, were mending their nets. Neither 
set of brothers were looking for the Savior when he called out to them to follow after him. Neither were doing anything that would prepare them for what they would be doing for Christ. They were in their comfort zone. They were born and bred on the sea. Their hands knew everything they took to know about fishing. Mending the nets, where to cast the nets, how to take care of everything on the ship. And God says, you've been in the shallow end far too long. It's time for you to come out in the deep end. And I'm going to show you and I'm going to fit you and equip you to do something that you never anticipated you'd be doing. You've been stable. You've been dependent on your own two feet. It's time for you to step out in faith. It's time for you to get out of your comfort zone. It's time for you to come to the deep end. And I'm going to show you how you can use your feet in a whole new level and in a whole new way and lead you to do something that you never even thought you would be fit or equipped to do. This is what he was doing. Notice what we read in, in Matthew 9, verse 9 as well, because how Jesus called Matthew is very similar. It says, And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Again, Matthew wasn't looking for Jesus. He wasn't handing Jesus his resume. He wasn't trying to convince him that he would be an excellent addition to Jesus' entourage. He was sitting and doing his job. Elisha may not have been pursuing this life as a prophet. Neither was he even expecting it. But what we do see is that he was actively engaged when the call came to him, as was the case with the disciples that we just mentioned. The ministry is not about sitting around and talking about what needs to get done. It is no place for idle hands and people who wish to spend their time seeking entertainment and seeking worldly pleasure. That's not to say that we can never have nice things. Or it's not to say that you, it's a sin to drive a nice car. But when the pursuit of material possessions consumes us and blinds us from what God has called us to do, then it's a problem. The ministry is not a job that we clock in and clock out from. It is a calling. Ministry is life. Ministry is a life that is constant. And it's a life that is a constant self-sacrifice and at times tireless devotion. Many people think that ministry is a walk in the park involving little to no hard work. Well, wouldn't that be nice? Sadly, many who enter the ministry think that they're going to enjoy a life of relative ease with all sorts of free time. Those who are most likely to be sincere and passionate in the ministry are the ones who will be used by God in a great way and they'll put in the hours and they'll never clock out because they know that ministry doesn't end at five o'clock. No matter the ministry, it is always going to involve diligent work, whether you're called to preach, whether you're called to be a missionary, whether you're called to be an evangelist, whether you're called to serve in a local church or to minister just to your family. All of it requires hard work. Some people discount the work of others because it looks different than what they're doing. But rest assured, we just celebrated Mother's Day last week, and I'm going to still praise our mothers a little bit today. Rest assured, mothers, godly mothers, God-fearing mothers, you are as much serving Christ in looking after your children, in training them up in the fear of God, in taking care of the house, in making your home a church for God, as if you had been called to lead an army for the Lord in the battle. 
don't ever shortchange what you're doing because it looks different than the preacher or the evangelist or the missionary in a foreign field. You are so important to that family and to what is being done in that home because you're nurturing those little ones for the Lord. Your ministry may not be as glamorous as someone else's, but it is just as vital as what anyone else is called to do. Ministry is never about us. And that is why those who are in it for self-glorification and for self-promotion are always having to come up with new methods and new ways to attract more people. Ministry is not about self-promotion. It's not about entertainment. It's about glorifying God by serving him. Ministry is all about Christ. And you can see why ministry is not something that we naturally seek after. Living in a world that is constantly pushing us a specific direction, and that is one of self-advancement and self-glorification and self-promotion at any means necessary. Serving Christ is almost counterproductive to what the world is telling us to do. By serving Christ, essentially what we're having to do is to esteem his work, Christ's work, and his will higher than our own. And we're submitting to his advancement, his glorification, his magnification before we ever think of how we stand to benefit from any of it. Now, this can be a hard sell to young and immature believers. Who wants to sign up for long hours, for stressful work conditions, while dealing with difficult and stubborn people? Oh, and did I mention that all the work that you may do in ministry may not ever get acknowledged by those that you're ministering to? And you're probably going to be compensated little or next to nothing. This goes against much of what we are taught to pursue from the world. We're told that success is measured by how much money you have or how high you're able to climb into the business world or how many degrees you can put to hang on your wall, how nice of a car you drive, how many people you have working beneath you, how many different skills you can master, or how nice of a home you live in. We're okay tirelessly working to such an end, to get all those things, to build ourselves up, to get a nice nest egg for us to settle and completely rely upon. But what about tirelessly working without being rewarded? by all the luxuries and all the creature comforts that are offered in this world. Charles Spurgeon once said, he said, nothing more tends to strengthen the faith of the young believer than to hear the veteran Christian covered with scars from the battle, testifying that the service of his master is a happy service and that if he could have served any other master, he would not have done so, for his service was pleasant and his wages everlasting joy. The reality of the ministry is that the work that we're called to do is eternal. As fun as it is to have nice things here on earth, how long are they really going to last? The ministry is all about investing into eternity. And that is why you can't put a price on it. I'll never discourage someone from working hard and trying to make a good living for themselves. Do it. Be diligent. But some people are so focused on that on trying to build the perfect life for themselves. And that constitutes having the nice home and having the nice car and and having a a massive bank account where you're not stressing about finances and how bills are going to get paid, that they end up missing the bigger picture of eternity. Look again at what we see here in verse number 19 of 1 Kings 19. 
It says, so he departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with the 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he with the 12th, and Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. We don't know a whole lot about Elisha and his family, but based on the fact that his family had 12 yoke of oxen, leads us to believe that they're probably a little well off. Evidently, Elisha's father was smart enough, even in his wealth, to not allow his son to grow up in idleness, as is so often the case with men of wealth, but showed his son the value of hard work. Because the picture that we see when Elijah approaches, approaches him is that Elisha was strenuously working. He was plowing with the oxen when Elijah approached him, casting the mantle upon him, which we see Elijah do to Elisha was a sign of him being called to the office of this prophet. Elijah threw his cloak over him, signifying that God was calling him to this specific position. And think about the drastic change this would mean for Elisha. This would mean that he would be giving up a wealthy life, one that he could stay in the family business and never have to worry about anything. Everything's taken care of. It's not a business that he has to build up. It's a business that's already built up. His dad did all the work. His dad handed him a working farm, 12 yoke of oxen, things that were just humming along so beautifully. And he's telling him, son, if you want it, it's all yours. He doesn't have to worry about a thing for the rest of his life. And what does he do? The moment Elijah comes and throws his mantle over him, he realizes my days here on the farm are over. I've been living out my days here in the shallow end and God is calling me to move out into the deep end and stretch my legs and to do something that is going to take me beyond my comfort zone, which has been here in the family business. I have no idea where that's going to lead. But he's going to be diligent to answer the call that God gives. Leaving his home to become a servant of the Lord, financially speaking, was a huge step backwards. But listen to what we're told in 2 Timothy 2 verse 4. 2 Timothy 2, verse 4 says, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Once again, there is absolutely nothing wrong with having nice things, with driving a nice car, with having a really big fancy house. But those, as it says there in 2 Timothy 2, verse 4, who become entangled, with the things of this world and the pursuit of more will severely stunt their ministry for Christ and shortchange themselves of many blessings that God would have otherwise poured out upon them had they trusted in him more than the riches and the wealth of this world. This was a test for Elisha. Was he going to give up a life of plenty for the life of poverty? And notice third, Elisha's response to God's call. Elisha's response to God's call. Look at verses 20 and 21 once more. It says, And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. And he said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? And he returned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave unto the people, and they did eat. And he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. I love that. It says, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah. He didn't hesitate. But even more than that, he immediately becomes a servant. Did you notice that? 
Notice what he says to Elijah. He says, let me, I pray thee. He's the man on his family business, on the farm, tending to the oxen, taking care of plowing the field. Elijah comes, lets him know that he's been called into service of the Lord. And he immediately, Elisha does, becomes a servant. Let me, I pray thee, he says. There is such an instant humility in Elisha to approach Elijah as his master as he seeks his permission. Now, some may look at this and suggest that Elisha wasn't completely committed here because he's asking to go home and take care of a few things before he fully commits to Elijah. But I would argue against that. I think that what Elisha did here was actually incredibly wise and something that more people should do. Too many people are too quick into jumping into something without first considering if it is truly God calling them to do something or to go somewhere, or if it is just their own desire and their own impulse. There is wisdom. There is wisdom to take time to pray about how you feel the Lord is leading you. Because even when it seems so certain, it may not be of the Lord. Elisha obviously had a good relationship with his parents, and he was demonstrating qualities of an affectionate son who was going home to tend to his parents first before he left them for good. This was not an excuse to delay his obedience to God's call. This was actually a proof of his diligence in accepting God's call and his readiness to leave his father and his mother and commit to following God. We see Elijah give him permission to go back, not wanting Elisha to feel pressured one way or the other, but to know that his calling is not from him, but from God. And notice again what he says there in verse, verse number 20. He says, And he left the oxen, ran after Elijah, and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then will I follow thee. And he said, and This is Elijah speaking to Elisha. He says, Go back. Go back again. For what have I done to thee? He says, It's not me. God's the one that's calling you into this. Go home. Verify it. Confirm it. Do everything you need to do. Make sure that this is indeed of God. And then when you're ready, come back. Far too many well-intentioned people have been pressured into ministry who weren't ready and who weren't even called. One of the biggest detriments to the church over the years has been the repetition of what God has warned us about back in Jeremiah 23, verse 21, where he said this. He says, I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. What these people don't realize is that good intentions aren't good enough. In 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verses 6 through 7, we read about a man who had really good intentions, but paid for it with his life. Notice what it says here, 2 Samuel 6 verses 6 through 7. It says, and when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark and took hold of it. For the oxen shook it, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. A lot of people have struggled with this because they're looking at a man, they're thinking he was doing a good thing. There was good intentions here. He was carrying the ark of the covenant, and he noticed that as the oxen shook the cart, it was about to fall, so he reached his hand forth, and he prevented the ark of the covenant from falling to the ground, and God strikes him dead. How was that fair? Well, first of all, God has specifically said that it was not to be transferred that way. 
there were certain rules in which how God's furniture pieces that were designed to be in the tabernacle and later the temple were to be treated, were to be handled, and he was not one that should ever handle the, the elements of the tabernacle. And he thought that his hand was less contaminated and less evil than the ground that the ark was about to fall upon, thinking that he was actually going to do a good thing by saving it from touching the ground. And so God punished him on the spot. And here it says in 2 Samuel that God did this because of the, of the error of his way. Good intentions. Poor execution. Had no business transferring the ark the way it was being transferred. Had no business doing any of what was being done there. And he paid for it with his life. Many churches have suffered because people are leading those churches who have no business doing what they're doing. This is why there is wisdom in doing what Elisha did here. He was accepting God's call and confirming that it was indeed of God. What makes it even better is that he was accepting this call at a time when it was a dangerous time to be a servant for God. Prophets were being openly persecuted, openly martyred. Jezebel, who was Ahab's wife, was hotly pursuing Elijah. She's the one that put the death threat on him, saying, "Today at this time, tomorrow at this same time, you're going to be like one of the prophets of Baal, dead, no longer alive." That's what led Elijah to run into the wilderness to seek God and to take his life. He was ready for it all to be over. Jezebel was hotly pursuing all of this. We may not see it all that much here in America, but Christians today are suffering and being martyred more than any other time in history. The ministry of Christ is met with more hostility today than what we've ever seen. Elisha was motivated out of a love for God. And this is why he didn't allow the possibility of threats and the persecution to deter him from what he knew God was calling him to do. And look at verse 21 once more because he goes home and notice what he does after. It says, And he returned back from him, took a yoke of oxen, and slew them, and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen, and gave unto the people, and they did eat. Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. Elisha was giving up all of the creature comforts he had enjoyed throughout his life. He was coming out of the shallow end to go into the deep end where he had no clue what was going to be happening and how he would be equipped to even stay afloat where his feet were not ready at that time at least to do. He had a heart for his service and was willing to respond to God's call. And his obedience to God is seen here in how he arose and went to minister. Elisha went from being an heir to a small fortune to being an outcast. This was the final part of the test. Could he give up what was valuable to him to submit to the will of someone else? It's a big ask, isn't it? How many of us would be willing to give up everything that has been important to us, everything that we have valued in this life, to follow after Christ? How many of us would be willing to submit our will to the will of God? which may require us to make significant sacrifices of luxuries and comforts that we've come to enjoy in this life. No matter who you are and where you are in life, God is calling each of us to serve him in some way. Make sure that where you feel led is truly of God and count the cost of responding to his call in obedience. You have to make your own decision. But what I can tell you is that all of those who have responded to God's call, God's call, not your heart's call, God's call, all those who have responded to God's call in obedience have never looked back. May we take comfort 
and knowing that who God calls, God also equips. May we bow in prayer here this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for how long-suffering and patient you are to us. Lord, we know that we have, Lord, often been a little too eager to do things which, Lord, feel good and seem right and may even have the right intentions, Lord, but may not be of you. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to recognize that we are to be humble servants. Lord, that is submitting ourselves to you and to your leading, verifying that it is truly of you and not something that our hearts desire because we think it would be beneficial. Lord, help us to know what your will has for us, to know what specific areas, Lord, that we need to be serving in. And even if it's something, Lord, that we thought was right and we felt it right, Lord, deep down in our core, but Lord, you may be closing the door. Help us, Lord, to have the guidance from the Holy Spirit who may be showing us, Lord, that our time in the shallow end is coming to an end because you're expanding our comfort zone to bring us to a new area, Lord, where you're going to equip us to be used in a different way. I ask, Lord, for your help to give us all courage and the boldness that we need to step out on faith and to go where you've called us to go and to be what you've called us to be. In Christ's name we pray, amen.